Good morning, Merry Christmas. Um, my name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Church. Glad to be together this morning as the family of families, as uh, we are here because of what God has done or is doing in our lives. That's what's bringing us together. And uh, typically, we study verse by verse through a book of the Bible. We're in the Gospel of John. We have pressed pause on that sermon series to uh, celebrate and behold and remember the season of Advent. And Advent literally means the arrival of a noteworthy person, thing, or event. And throughout church history, uh, this time of year has been set apart to celebrate and remember the arrival of the advent of Jesus, the Son of God who put on flesh and became incarnate, making his dwelling place with his creation. And it's not really clear in church history when the church began to celebrate Advent season. However, there is writings even um, in the area of Spain that were discovered as late as like the fourth century. Needless to say, this season and its ramifications have been a part of the Christian expression for hundreds, if not thousands, of years. Coming up on the calendar each and every December, the church has reflected upon, celebrated, and I trust worshipped Jesus, the one who has come into the world. With almost endless ramification, heaven in this unique way touched earth. Dustin kicked off our Advent celebration with that mystery. The mystery of the incarnation. The reality that part of the triune God stepped down from heaven, put on the flesh of a man, and his name was Jesus. Then Pastor Josh drew our minds and hearts towards the reality of Jesus as the son of Mary, but was also Mary's savior. And then last week, Pastor Pat pointed us towards the picture of glory and grace that was given to all people, but humble shepherds. Of all people, humble shepherds. And this morning, we will celebrate the incarnation of Jesus through a different lens. For he came as a man. Yes, he did. He came as a son and as a savior. Yes, and amen. He came graciously and humbly. Yes, he did but he also came as the true king. And this morning, uh, that is what we are going to look at. The sermon title for this morning, which I believe is behind me, is Jesus Comes as the True King. And although it took 39 books to set the stage for his coming, which is the Old Testament, and although it takes 27 books to vet out the implications, the New Testament, we are going to try to pause and look carefully at the unique expression of Jesus coming as the king and the details and the consequences of his coming. So first, we are going to look at the context this morning of Jesus coming as king. What was the climate in which he came? What were the details that surrounded his arrival? Who was for him? Who was against him? What's the, what's the context for these, these odd visitors? What were they all about? And then what's with that star, right? So we're going to look at context first and foremost. And then second, I want to look at our, a couple consequences, three of them. The oh-so-good consequences of Jesus coming as king. 
three of them this morning. The first is, is that Jesus coming in the king in this text means that Jesus is king of all peoples. The second is that Jesus coming as king means that he is king for all time. And because he's king of all peoples and because he's king for all time, Jesus requires our worship. So Jesus comes as king. If you like alliteration, you can see what I did there with Christmas. I've got the word come, I've got the word context, and I've got the word consequences. Hoorah for those of you that like alliteration. Great. For those of you that don't care, that's okay too. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. And I'm going to invite us to stand as we read in Matthew chapter 2 verse 1. Stand with me as we read the word of the Lord. Follow along um, if you, in your Bibles. Starting in verse one. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled at all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Haran summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared and he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. Then offering their treasures, they opened him gifts. They offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. There are lots of details surrounding the birth of Jesus, some of which are filled in by historic tradition. Other details are filled in by textual study, and still others are filled in by pragmatism. Maybe at the top of the list are the details surrounding the visitation of some mysterious wise men from the East. Going up, uh, growing up in the church, I was blessed by being a part of uh, several uh, Christmas plays celebrating the birth of Jesus in the Nativity. And I'm not sure why, but I always wanted to be a wise man. <laughs> you know, like, I, that's just the, that's the role I wanted to be casted in. I don't know if it because at the time I thought that they were kings or because they were wealthy, or wore cool clothes, I don't really know, but I remember wanting to be casted as a wise man, and lo and behold, one year, I think I was about 10, 11 years old, like I get casted 
as Caspar, one of the wise men. And my two best friends at the time got casted as the other two wise men, so three in total. And all the things that I can remember about that were great. Like, we got kids involved. It helped communicate the story of Christmas in a different way. And there were even a couple jokes that we as wise men got to have in the play. Like, we got to, a couple different times, you know, use the idea of a proposed necktie for baby Jesus as a gift to give to him, you know? Like, it was, it was good. There was good, good memories. And as good as pragmatism can be, like having enough roles to include as many children into a church play as possible, or as good as tradition might be as it relates to the events of the Magi visiting Jesus, scripture is surprisingly unclear on many of the details surrounding the Magi's visit. I say unclear not that there aren't answers, only that the the Bible does not give us direct expression. In Matthew, which is the only gospel account that even talks about the Magi visiting Jesus, Matthew is selective on what details that he believes is important for us as his readers. So, what is the context that we see in Scripture for Jesus coming as the king who's visited by these magi. Look at, we, look at me with, in Matthew chapter uh, two, verse one. It says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So based on the text, we know that the approximate date for Jesus' birth was somewhere between uh, six B.C., and 4 BC. Why do we know that? Because we know from history that King Herod reigned from 37 BC until his death in 4 BC. And Herod was not a Jew. Very important. He was not a Jew. Instead, Herod was appointed as king of the Jews by the occupying world power at the time, which was Rome. Herod was known for his firm and ruthless reign, where he even murdered members of his own family to protect his rule. He killed a wife and several of his own sons. Herod was known as a master builder, building uh, theaters and cities and palaces and fortresses, and he even began reconstructing the temple in Jerusalem in about 20 B.C. Josephus, the well-known first century historian once wrote that Herod believed that the rebuilding of the temple would be a grand enough task to assure his own eternal remembrance. As history later showed, Herod dies like all kings. He dies in a palace in Jericho as his mortal body succumbs to a bunch of different diseases. However, Herod got his wish, for he is remembered even to this day, but more than likely, not as the one who started to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, but as the first earthly king who is threatened by Jesus, the true king, the the true king of the Jews, and he commits mass murder to protect his own throne. This is what the wise men unknowingly step into. Verse one, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? 
for we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Several questions begin to bubble as we look at these verses, some of which are answers, others of them are not. First, who are these wise men? The honest answer is we don't fully know because the text doesn't really tell us. The Greek word here translated as wise men in other translation as magi is magos, which refers to this idea of a, of a priest or a, an expert in the mysterious arts of astrology, um, dream interpretation, the study of sacred writings, the pursuit of wisdom and or magic. The picture that I get is like of a gypsy or a mystic. That's what I think about. Now the text tells us that they came from the east and if you know your geography of where Jerusalem is located which is just on the east bank more or less of the Mediterranean Sea that could mean that it could be anywhere between modern day Iraq and China, right? I mean, that's a large eastern plain. Thankfully, the description coming from the east is not the only clue that we have for where these guys might have come from. We also see in verse two, what informed and motivated them to make the journey. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So it's, it's not really surprising at first blush that these guys that spent um, their entire lives or at least a large portion of their free time um, studying the stars that they are learned star gazers. Now we know from the Greek word uh, magos and this description of seeing the star that they believed in the powerful and divine force of the stars to communicate significant events. That's their context. That's their worldview. But another question rises, how would have they known what this star was communicating? Scholars point to two strong possibilities. First is the wise men came from the area, if they came from the area east of Babylon or Persia, known, kind of known as Mesopotamia, that area, both of those are located east of Jerusalem and they would have been exposed to Jewish writing and teaching during the time that the Israelites were in exile hundreds of years earlier. We know from biblical history that the Israelite nation was given their land and their portion by God, but because of their disobedience to God, God uses two different nations to remove them from the land and take them into exile. It's possible that they are familiar with the writings of the prophet Daniel, who, though an Israelite, rises to influence by God's favor in a foreign land during this time of exile and prophesied that anointed one, a prince, would rise up and would rule from this region. It's also possible that they're familiar with Balaam. Who remembers Balaam? Anybody remember Balaam and his donkey? Okay. Balaam was a prophet um, who prophesied even earlier than Daniel. Balaam lived in this same area of Mesopotamia and he was an enemy of God. But what did God do? God used Balaam to pronounce blessing onto his people as God's people entered into the promised land. Balaam didn't want to do it. 
But God used Balaam to say these words in Numbers chapter 24, verse 7. This is what he said on a mountain overlooking the Israelite nation as they pass by into the land of promise. He says this, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Now, regardless of how these wise men knew, this much is straightforward. God revealed to them the unique significance of such a star and so they packed up and they followed it. If they traveled out of this area of Mesopotamia, which seems most likely, they traveled about 800 miles, which in this day and time would have taken about 40 days. Following the star, which we'll talk a little bit more about in a moment, and their intellect, they traveled to the capital city of the area called Jerusalem. For what better place for a king of the Jews to be born? Verse three, here is Herod's reaction. He welcomes the men in. Notice we aren't told how many wise men there really are. More than likely, there was more than three. Why? Because of the duration of the travel and the type of travel. There would have been a large party that was um, coming along with these wise men. And so they come in, they bring gifts, okay, and they come before Herod. And what are we told about Herod's reaction? Look at it with me. He says, Herod was alarmed and all of Jerusalem. Why was Jerusalem alarmed? We don't know. It could be the fact that it was a, a spiritual indication of where Jerusalem's heart was at the time, or it simply could be that your ruler is alarmed and he's not a pleasant guy to be around when he's alarmed. We don't know. We don't know. But we know that Herod was alarmed. Rightfully so, for he correctly assumes that this baby is a threat to his own kingship and his own influence. Herod quickly tries to determine the time for which the star shows up, and then he gathers together the experts of the Jewish law, because, because why? Because Herod's not a Jew. And so he gathers them together, and they conclude, they tell Herod that this king, the Christ, has been promised a couple different times, specifically from the prophet Micah. Micah foretold of this event, which is the scripture that is quoted here out of Micah chapter 5. Staying true to form, Herod invites the wise men in privately, and he tells them, hey, you need to go to Bethlehem. Find this baby and then report back to me his location. Look at verse 9, moving along in the account. Listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly and with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child and Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening up their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Two more observations to slide under context of our time this morning before we move on to consequence. First is this star. What are we to make of the star? In short, what do you know? We don't really know. 
We don't really know because scripture doesn't explicitly say. However, that doesn't leave, um, uh, it, it doesn't remove people from speculation, right? Everybody has an idea about what this star is. Some people have said that it's like a natural phenomenon, like a comet or a supernova that just so happened to take place during the birth of Jesus. Some people have even said that it's like a conjunction of the planets, specifically Jupiter and Saturn. Here's the problem with that. There are two descriptions in the text that should allow us to reject the idea that it was a natural phenomenon. Look at it with me first. It's the precision movement of the star. Okay, I'm not a, uh, an astrologist. I don't look at the stars hardly ever. I'm usually asleep. Um, so uh, take this for whatever it's worth. My understanding is that most natural stars appear to move east to west because of the rotation of the earth. Which direction did the star move in the text? It moves west and then it moves which direction? Where is Bethlehem in relation to Jerusalem? It's about It's south. How far south? Only like six miles. Only like six miles. Okay, that is a precision movement that guided them first to Herod and then six miles and then not just six miles to an area, But what does the text say? The star moves them directly to the home of where baby Jesus is. That is quite something. Second, the star seems to only be visible to certain people. Do you notice that? Like in the word, in the text, the scripture doesn't seem to indicate that anyone else besides the wise men noticed the star. Nobody else seems to see it except for these men. For those reasons, I am of the opinion that this guiding star must have been supernatural, possibly even an angel or the physical manifestation of the glory of God that God used to draw these wise men first to Herod, that was intentional, and then second to Bethlehem, to Jesus himself. Last and final observation is the time. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary. The scripture is clear that the arrival of the wise men was after uh, Mary's delivery, not before and not during. Why were they still in Bethlehem during the time? And how long were they there? Great questions. I don't know. It's possible that they're recovering Right, Mary is recovering. Uh, it's possible that uh, because Joseph is from the area, there's family of Joseph, and so they're, they're getting aid from this family with uh, a mother that just gave birth and, and an infant and a newborn. Like, we don't know. We don't know why they're still there, except for the fact that God, in his providence, wanted the wise men to meet Jesus in Bethlehem and to bring forth gifts fitting for the true king, gold. Fitting for the true prophet, frankincense, and fitting for the one true sufferer, myrrh. 
This is the context for which Jesus comes as the true king, visited by the Magi. So what are some of the consequences? Why did Matthew and only Matthew record these events? And what points does it highlight to the nature and the consequence of Jesus as the true king? There's three large consequences this morning that I want us to meditate on. Number one, Jesus is king, which means that Jesus is king of all peoples. Only with this context can this point be fully appreciated. Okay, consider with me for a moment why Matthew, a Jew, writing to a largely Jewish audience at the time, would have included the visitation of Gentiles into the birth of their king, the king of the Jews. And of all the Gentiles that could have been included, the backward odd, bizarre, and even evil practices of the Magi. If you look through the Old Testament, most of the things that the Magi did were directly forbidden by God to his people. They're not to associate with, let alone entertain, um, such wicked and evil practices. And to the first century Jewish reader of Matthew's account, this inclusion would have been highly offensive, at least, and, and at least repugnant to them. And to add insult to injury, not only are they Gentiles seeking out our king, the blessing of Israel, the one that we have been waiting for for thousands of years, the one that's been promised to us, God's people, but which people group? And which area do they come from? Those are the same people that took them into exile hundreds of years before. Like, how dare they come to worship our king? How dare they? That sentiment is not unique to them, is it? Like the human condition is plagued with partiality, with tribalism, and like a superiority complex that's all rooted in pride. But here is the glorious truth that we celebrate with the incarnation of Jesus. Jesus came as the true king, and in so doing, he proclaims that he is king of all peoples by drawing different peoples unto himself even at his birth. Even at his birth. He is the king, not just of certain individuals or certain groups of people, but of all peoples, plural. Jesus coming as the true king means that all people, all people groups, regardless of skin color, nationality, and language, like he is king. He's the king over all people, regardless of social status, be they kings, be they presidents, be they, be, they be the, the, the socially elite or the social downcast. He is king. For God, 
through the work of his redemptive story and the record given to us in his word through Matthew. Matthew and God is intentionally bringing us to see that truth by including these specific visitors who were a very specific kind of people coming from a very specific place, completely different, completely far off. God draws them in. Who sent the star? Who caused the star to move west to Jerusalem and then overhead to where Jesus was at? God called them to the foot of Jesus, the true king, to worship him. Consequence number one this morning, Jesus coming as the true king means that Jesus is the king of all peoples and we see that right at his birth. That God is drawing people out of the land of exile God is drawing people out of the land of exile, both figuratively and in this text quite literally, to come to be his people under the rule of Jesus as the king. Second consequence this morning. Jesus coming as the true king means that Jesus is king for all time. Herod was right. He was right on the money to fear the kingship of Jesus. Herod was right in fearing his own death and with it his own fading glory in forgotten history. For all kings and all rulers are bound by the limitations of death. Their rule, their wisdom, and influence while alive have never been global or exhaustive by nature. And their reign have never been timeless. Not a one. Nations will rise and they will fall, but the glory of our God remains forever. Daniel's prophecy in the midst of exile says this in Um, Daniel chapter 7 verse 14 speaking of Jesus as king and it says this and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples nations language should serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom one that shall never be destroyed Jesus is the king for all time, meaning his rule and his wisdom is perfect and it's not subject to decay. Like think about that as it relates to these visiting wise men. As odd and strange as they may have seemed to us and maybe even to some of them at the time, these guys were on the cutting edge of wisdom of their day. But the wisdom of this world, the influence of this world is always subject to decay. It's always being proven as being out of date. C.S. Lewis said this once, whatever is not eternal is eternally out of date. Meaning, today's experts often turn out to be tomorrow's magi. Today's experts often turn out to be tomorrow's magis. Leaders articulate that they know, right? Governments articulate that they know and then they regulate, right? Healthcare makes promises, 
right? Like, they're not always completely wrong, but think back on the last several decades of what we once thought was true and solid, and now it's completely different. Not so with King Jesus. Like, therefore, church, like, we ought to be careful to place confidence in the wisdom of this world. Better yet, allow the wisdom of this world to to conform and be subservient to the things of God. To the word of God and the wisdom of God. Like, let us be people that place our hope not in the wisdom of this world to figure out what humanity really needs. And then come up with a solution to how to solve that problem. God's wisdom and God's plan for humanity has always been and still is perfect. Yes and amen. God's revealed wisdom for humanity is given us in his word, perfectly seen in the face of Jesus, his gospel. Throughout human history, our experiences, our discoveries, only ever affirm the truths that God has already told us in his word. From his creation of us, to the reasons our broken world uh, that is broken, which is our sin against God, like to our deepest desire to be loved and accepted and belong, all of which find their perfect yes in the reality that Jesus came, died, and three days later rose victorious over sin, Satan, and death, providing perfect reconciliation for anyone that would turn from their sin and trust and follow him as the one true king. Which leads us to our last and final consequence this morning. That Jesus is the king. He is the king that requires our worship. Just like that of the wise men who rightfully humbled themselves before Jesus, God too is calling you and he's calling I to look upon the incarnation of Jesus this Christmas season and in wonder and awe let worship rise unto him. Jesus comes as the true king. He is king of all peoples and he's king for all time and church family let us consider how to make room for worship in the days leading up to and during Christmas for he is worthy of that worship is he not yes and amen my prayer my hope my desire for myself for my family for you all for our church is that in the in the busyness of this season busy of good things that we would intentionally make room for worship because he's worthy of it. Yes, amen. Let us do that. Lord God, let us pray. God, we trust you. We trust that you alone um, are worthy of our worship, of our praise. There's many other things, Lord God, that are good. Just think about my calendar. Oh, Lord God, it is, it is packed with good things over the next two weeks, next 10 days. Lord God, I pray 
that you would help us be people, you'd help me be a person that desires for worship to be at the heart of this Advent season as we come, as we, we consider, as we celebrate the incarnation of Jesus. Oh Lord God, may it stir our hearts in affection for you. May we celebrate the good truths that you have come into this world. You've done that as a man. You've done it humbly. And you've also done it as the reigning king who's calling exiles back to himself. Lord, we pray that you would do that for your glory and the good of your blood-bought people. And everybody said, amen.